Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, John Gossett. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Richard, for having me. I appreciate it. John and I became acquainted about a year ago or so as I became aware of John's work in the Tooele County area and beyond to prevent suicide. Um, John is a married father of four children, five grandchildren, really, really good guy um, who's felt impressed to step in this space and has started an organization foundation called Life's Worth Living. And I want to have John on the podcast to talk about his efforts to prevent suicide. So if you're suicidal, I hope the things that John share will give you uh, more hope to live. If you've had a family member die um, from suicide, I hope the things that John shares will help you heal and move forward. And for those of you that want to get in this, involved in this space, perhaps some of the things that John talks about um, are things that you can do in your area of influence to be a positive voice of support. And I hope also that some of the things that John shares will just give all of us more tools. This is a pretty complicated space, but I've learned talking about it increases our ability to help others. And John's been doing a really good job of that. So with that, John, we're um, once again, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me on. Let's talk, go ahead. And even though I briefly introduced your family, introduce your family to our listeners and where you live. Yeah, so I actually grew up in uh, in Utah for the most part. My dad worked for the government. We moved around a little bit, so we we did spend a little time in in California, Montana, New Mexico. But uh, for the most part, I was raised in Orem, Utah. And and now that I'm married, we've we've moved around a little bit. But we are lifers in Tooele County. I'm I've been married for 26 years, and. Uh, I've got four kids, two girls, two boys, two are married and living here in the Tooele County. I have five grandchildren children from them. And then I've got a daughter that's just finishing up college in Orem, and she's getting married next year. And I've got a son that still lives at home now. And, uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been a journey. It's been fun. Talk about what you do professionally for our listeners, John. So I came home from a mission. I served in the Texas Fort Worth mission. And when I came home, I uh, became a tile contractor. And I've been working my entire life as a uh, tile contractor here in Utah. So um, I do that full time. Um, every day, I still get up and put on the knee pads and go to work. And, and uh, we work around northern Utah. and. And, you know, it's, it's my whole bag of tricks. That's, that's really all I'm good at. <laughs> well, you're very good at it. And I assume you're busy. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been crazy. That's great. Talk about here you are going on in your life. And um, then you, um, peep, there's some suicides that happen to, um, in, in your circle. Share with us just that story. Yeah, well, to back up, uh, it was February of 2014, and I had not suffered a suicide in my family. Um, of course, you always hear of them. You know, maybe through 
friends of friends and stuff, you'll know who the people that have died by suicide, but I hadn't had anybody very close to me. And February um, 2014, my son was a junior at Tula High School. We had wrestled uh, at the state tournament three years in a row. My son was a wrestler. And then being that I'm a contractor, the following weekend, the weekend after President's Day, we'd always uh, head to St. George to the Prada Homes and kind of get ideas, see what, what the new uh, designs were, what was, what was coming around. And, and it was fun to kind of get out of the cold in February and go to St. George and have some sunshine and 60-degree weather. So it kind of been a tradition. We'd done it for years. And, and for some reason this year, my son, that was a junior, said, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go with you. And, you know, automatically your mind goes, well, what's he planning on doing if he's not going with us? And, and I lived two doors from my parents, um, two doors away from my parents. And I had a married son that lived, you know, just a block or two away. And, and I've got another daughter that was, was married. And, and so I have, I've got kids and, and family around that I could have check on him. So I just let him know, hey, if you're going to stay, you've got to answer your phone when I call. I don't care where you're at and I'm going to have people checking on you and you have to go to school. And he agreed. And so we left on Thursday and headed to St. George and Friday morning when, when we woke up and we're getting ready to go look at homes, we received, received word that one of his teammates that we'd been traveling around with for three years had died by suicide. Oh, gee. And it was, it was heartbreaking. I mean, I, I, I didn't know the boy as much as I knew the parents because that's who we sat with. We'd sit with them at all these tournaments and uh, some of the sweetest people you'd ever, ever meet and uh, good people. And their son was a heavyweight. My son was a lightweight, but uh, they still had been teammates for three years. And, and so I told my son, I called my son and coach had come and taken him out of class and taken him all down to the lunchroom. And had shared the news so that he would, they would hear it from him. And they were devastated. A lot of tears were shed. And uh, so I talked to my son, told him we'd be heading home. And he said, Dad, just stay. We're going to spend the day with Coach. Tonight, we're all going to go to Coach's house and hang out with Coach and his wife. And, and so he goes, I wouldn't be home anyway. So just stay. And if I need you, I'll have you come home. And so we we tried to kind of go about our day, but having that heavy news kind of weighing on you, um, it was tough to take. It was, it was heavy. And, uh, so we went out and we looked at homes, but all day long, that's in the back of our mind. Like, I can't believe, I can't believe that that, that happened. And, uh, we checked in with him multiple times that day. And, and that night we went back to where we were staying and, and, you know, it was still a topic, something that we were, uh, you know, trying to wrap our heads around. And, and Saturday we got up and we went and we looked at homes again and kind of still a downer. I mean, it's a, it's a lot to take in. And so we're, we're looking at homes, but it just is not the same. That evening we had reservations at a restaurant and uh, um, as we got there, my best friend called me. And I didn't take his call. And my wife said, well, that, that's rude. I can't believe you're not taking his call. And I said, it's so loud in here. I wouldn't be able to hear him anyway. 
I'll just call as we leave. And, and so we went in and we ate and we were with people down there, um, friends and family and stuff. And so we, we finished eating and we headed back to where we were staying. And I, I called my friend back and he didn't answer. And it was late, but I, I went ahead and shot him a text and I just said, what's up, big guy? And he, in a very direct way, I won't tell you what he had said, but in a very direct way, he had said, uh, let me know that his son had taken his life. Um, and my friend was serving as the bishop of his ward. His son lived in his ward boundary, so he was his son's bishop. And, uh, and his son was married with three kids, and, and here he found his son after uh, he had taken his life. So devastating. Um, I was fairly close with this young man and, and, uh, I knew him well. Our families are like family, you know, we're friends, but we're, we're very close. And, and this was just like, uh, punch to the gut. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Two suicides in two days that we actually knew. Um, and it was devastating. And even though we had heard of suicides, there had been suicides prior to these two in Tooele. It had been a rough year, um, to be quite honest, but none of them hit home until now. And uh, I just, I, for a week or so, I had a hard time sleeping at night. I couldn't get it out of my head. Um, I felt inspired or driven or whatever you want to say that that we needed to start a foundation and we needed to make a difference where we, where we could here at home. And so in the middle of the night, my wife woke up and I was awake and she said, what are you doing awake? And, and I had let her know, Hey, you're not going to be thrilled, but we got to, I'm going to start a foundation for suicide prevention. And that's just exactly what we did. I didn't know anything. I didn't have like the, the, fix it tool to just come in and say, we're, you know, things are going to be different from here on out. But I just knew this was something that, that needed to be done. And so we quickly uh, filed our paperwork for our 501c3 nonprofit at the state level, had them start doing the background checks. And we, we just started moving forward. And what's interesting about it, <laughs> everything that we did in that first year, not knowing what we were doing felt very inspired, like things from the name to our threefold mission, you know, to raise awareness, educate and prevent suicides. All of that kind of just landed in my lap, like out of nowhere that things just fell into place. And uh, I, I'm lucky for that because I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew something needed to be done. And uh, if not me, then who? If and not so, me, then who? Were these two suicides related? Sometimes there's like um, one, per, you know, I'm cl- I don't know if they call them cluster suicides. Is, uh-huh. There's some contagion that happens. And, were th- is this, were these two related suicides or unrelated? Yeah. Totally unrelated. The one boy was 17. Um, the other boy, I think, was... 27, 29, um, in that, that, uh, age group. So they could have known 
families, but they didn't know each other. Um, totally unrelated in reasoning, you know, and, and, and what was behind each of those, but uh, it, devastating nonetheless. And so, I mean, here we have these two suicides two days apart. And the next week, we had two funerals one day apart, one at the Catholic Church and one at the LDS Church. And, and uh, you know, the suicide kind of is that way. It doesn't matter what religion. It doesn't matter what race. It doesn't matter uh, financial status. I mean, it, it really can hit anywhere, you know, and I think that's why we hear so often you know, wow, I, I never would have thought this would happen in my family, you know, just because it's always going to happen somewhere else, but not, not in your family, you know, and I think that's what catches people off guard so much. Talk about um, life's worth living and the threefold mission. Tell our listeners about the threefold mission. Yeah, so the threefold mission is to raise awareness, educate, and prevent suicide. And when, like I said, when that fell in my lap, that, you know, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> Looking back on it, it's, it's amazing that that even came to be because I, I didn't know much about any of those, <laughs> but it, it, we've never changed it because it's just so perfect that, you know, you've got to raise awareness. And, and for me, that was something that was a little bit difficult at the beginning. Uh, if if we would get recognition or uh, be in the newspaper or receive an award, it was so hard for me to, I, I didn't like that. I didn't like the attention. I don't like birthdays because I don't like the attention being on me. You know, I know who loves me throughout the year. I don't need them to show up on a certain day and bring me a gift. You know what I mean? And so I've just not been a big fan of the the attention. And so I kind of shunned it. And <laughs> I, I had received a, an award early on and I look back at the pictures and it's so awkward because you can tell I don't want to be there. I don't want to receive an award, but it's taken me, you know, the last seven, eight years or whatever to understand that if, if people don't see what you're doing, it's hard for them to be aware that things are being done. And so that's something I've had to get over and, uh, become better at because the awareness is all about having people see what's being done. And, and like I said, that wasn't a comfortable space for me, but, uh, um, you have to have people understand that there are people out there doing things or they're not going to know where to look. And so awareness has been key. We do some pretty, pretty big events that raise awareness. Um, one of which is we host the nation's longest suicide prevention walk. We walk 100 miles across Tooele County to Windover, Nevada. And uh, we do it every April, except for this year because of COVID. But, uh, you know, that entire walk was a publicity stunt the first year to get media attention to, to they hadn't shown up for something that we had uh, sent a press release for before. <laughs> and I, I said, you know, they don't come around unless you do something stupid. So we've got to do something just off the wall and, and a little bit nuts. And so we did this hundred mile walk to Windover and it has become the most healing, uh, incredible three day journey 
as you walk across the salt flats. Uh, you can't believe the stories you hear from families that have lost loved ones, uh, the paths that they've had to take, the journey that they've been on. And there's something just truly healing about it and beautiful about it as you gather together as a group of strangers. It's kind of like that first day in school where you show up and everybody's a wallflower at registration. Nobody knows each other and, and nobody's really visiting one, one, you know, one another. It's just everybody's kind of keeping their distance because they don't know anyone. And when that three days is done and the buses bring us back from Windover, Nevada, there's hugs, there's tears, there's, you know, and, and I see it on my end that all of these people are Facebook friends and I see them communicate throughout the year. And we've become kind of this big dysfunctional family of people that have suffered really hard things and difficult things. And they know that all of us have their back, that they've got somebody in their corner. And so that's been a beautiful thing, but that did start. That's cool. Truly with just awareness, you know, just, just raising awareness. Um, we uh, tried to bring awareness to, sorry enough, I get emotional, but um, we did something really cool two years ago um, in November, you know, so we just barely passed Veterans Day. But in 2018, um, we unveiled the nation's very first bronze monument dedicated to veteran suicide. Um, to solving the problem, to, to linking those struggling vets up with uh, uh, resources. And so we, we set out on January 1st to try to raise money for this quarter of a million dollar statue. And uh, we, we did it. We pulled it off. And that 18-foot statue stands in Tuila's Memorial Park, the Veterans Memorial Park. and. Every year, we put some more plaques of resources on the pedestal that's six feet tall. And uh, again, awareness. Um, I'm going to share a statistic with you, Richard, that it just blows my mind. Um, Everybody probably has heard that we lose 22 veterans a day to suicide. Now, we ask... We ask the unthinkable from our veterans. We send them to foreign lands, ask them to do very difficult things. And yet we hear, you know, if you're watching a war movie, if you are, uh, you even hear it on TV, but man, we leave no man behind. Leave, we leave no soldier on the battlefield. But yet, those soldiers come home and end up Dying in the shadows. Struggling with things that we've asked them to do. Like I said, the unthinkable. So uh, it was 2017 in September. We were asked as a foundation to go to the state capitol and be part of a a documentary viewing um, called Thank You for Your Service. And in that documentary, it was a difficult documentary to watch. I grew up in a very patriotic family. My dad was an army ranger. Um, 
And so I have a, this love for the military um, just because of the way I was raised. But we're up there at the Capitol and a statistic is told on this documentary. said in the Vietnam War, we lost 58,220 soldiers to combat. 58,000, that's huge. Um, what's even more staggering is of just those Vietnam soldiers, since the start of Vietnam, we've lost over 170,000 to suicide, three to one. Wow. And so, again, awareness. We, we unveiled this statue, the first in the nation, um, because people need to know that there's a problem to address it. Um, and then the second part of our, our thing is education. And so as a foundation, we are trainers in QPR, which stands for Question, Persuade, and Refer. Um, we do it in churches. We do it in schools. We do it in businesses. It's a 90-minute it's a training. Uh, we also are trainers in Talk Saves Lives, which is, again, another 90-minute training. They're very parallel, a little bit different from one to another. Um, the Talk Save Lives has one for firearms and it has one for seniors. It has one for the LGBT community. And so they're, they're just a little bit more dialed in and specialized for each group. And, and so we're trainers in that. Again, we do that in churches and, and schools and, and businesses, wherever there's a need. And then um, we're also trainers in Safe Talk and Safe Talk is a half day training. Uh, it's a little bit more advanced. The last time I taught it was I taught for Tooele School District. I taught all of their counselors in the school district and trained them in in Safe Talk. And it's a little bit more, like I said, advanced. Really explains how you make the handoff of of the person that's suffering with suicide ideation and. And so that one's been a real blessing. And uh, this April, we were supposed to be trained in one that's for the workforce called um, Working Minds. And if you think about your, your day, you've got 24 hours, eight hours of it you're going to spend sleeping, eight hours you're going to spend at work, and the other eight hours is kind of broken up among chores and, and you know, a little bit with your family. And eight. But the key to it is, Really, you're around the people you work with almost more than you're around your family. And so they're really on the front lines where if you're working with a coworker, you might be the person that notices the suicide ideation before anyone else. And so we're waiting until COVID gets to a point we can bring them in from Colorado. We've already paid for the training, but uh, um, we will be trainers in that. I'm hoping fairly soon, as, as soon as these numbers get in control with COVID. And then we'll be trying to hit workplaces, doing trainings and that. And, and then ultimately, our goal is to prevent suicide. And, you know, we, we do a couple of things to, to try to do that. We, we host a suicide support group at the hospital, a veteran support group at the health department, both of which have been canceled because of COVID this year. So it's been a really difficult year. And the, the sad thing, Richard, is here we're we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, 
we're not as social as we've been in the past. And, you know, isolation, isolating kills. It really does. I mean, if you're suffering with addictions, um, you generally tend to isolate. And isolation can be a, a real killer, like I said. And suicide prevention. Um, we, we all crave community. We all crave connection. And so when we are isolated, it just kind of seems to intensify what you're going through. And so COVID has been a real challenge in that fact that people that maybe weren't suffering before COVID are, are, are struggling and suffering now. And uh, so it's, it's really been difficult to be in the space of suicide prevention when you know so many people need what we offer and we can't get to them. And so it's been a challenging year, really has. It is a challenging year, and um, I'm glad you're honest about that. I, I love these three things, John, and awareness, um, educate, and prevention. Is your organization focused on Tooele County or all of Utah, or share with our listeners about your geographic scope? Well, I have a hard time saying no. Good. And that, I sense that about you. That's a weakness. Uh, you know, and here's the deal. Um, I'll kind of just break it down. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a suicide of a young lady that worked in Mill Creek. And she worked as a CNA at a, a rest home. Well, um, I was reached out to by the rest home saying, boy, we've got other employees that are struggling that knew her. And would you come in and, and talk to us about suicide prevention and we want to make sure that we don't have another death of another employee through this. And, and my answer always is yes. <laughs> sure, we'll come in. And, and I called my wife and I said, okay, I'm working in Farmington and I'm not going to have time to come back to Tooele. So bring me a change of clothes. I'm going to have to pull a Superman in the backseat of the car, change clothes, and then come in and help me with this training. And, and my wife's a champ. And, and she, met me at the rest home. I changed clothes in the parking lot and we got in the door. They took our temperatures and then explained to us that we had to put on a gown, a mask, a face shield, and be COVID tested. And I'm still married because I, I thought for a minute she might kill me. <laughs> I, I got us sucked into having to have the swab test, you know, but my wife's been just great and she is such I couldn't do without her. I just, I could not do this without her. And so, you know, and take it back a year, because I'll tell you kind of a special story. A year ago, we were in Farmington for a kickoff event for our foundation. Every, every February lately, we've tried to uh, do a big kickoff event, kind of a conference, bring in some people, get everybody pumped up that we're going to make a difference this year. And, and we'll hear some incredible stories and stuff. And, and so that February, somebody that we had invited to come to it showed up and was in tears and, and told me as they pulled into the parking lot of the hotel, they had received news that their nephew in uh, Sevier County had taken his life. Uh, coincidentally, he was a wrestler as well down there. And so I found out in February that of this first suicide in, in 
Sevier County. That week, I ended up receiving another phone call from someone else, kind of related to that one, that had attempted. And then the week later, there was a parent that had uh, taken their life. And, and, and this story just went round and round. It was so related. And, and to give you an idea, uh, national statistics are you'll end up having just shy of 23 suicides for 100,000 population. Well, between February and August, Sevier County had over 20. And we're talking out of 9,900 people in Richfield. So 10 times the rate of the national average. So I, and I'm, I might mess up this timeline a little bit. And if I do, I, I apologize, but it'll be close. So February, we received that first news of a suicide in Sevier County. Um, I have some conversations with people that are calling saying, what can you do for us down here? Um, May, I want to say it was around May, they did the Miss Sevier pageant down there. And I had this young lady um, named Bethany Hill. This, This cute girl was running for the pageant and she reached out to me and just on Facebook and said, hey, I've heard all these, these great things about life's worth living. I'm going to try out for this pageant and I would like to run on suicide prevention. Would you come to the pageant? And could I use an example of stuff from you? And I said, absolutely. So I called my married daughter and I said, hey, do you want to go on a, a weekend with me? And we'll go down to Sevier County and go to this beauty pageant. My daughter says, sure, I'll go with you, dad. So we head down to it. And this girl is just a hero of mine. I talked to her a week ago. Um, We got down there. She did an amazing job in the pageant, but she didn't win. She was, I, I think, like Miss Congeniality. And so after the pageant, my daughter and I walked up onto the stage. We had a little gift basket for her, gave her a hug, got a picture with her, thanked her so much for including us in it. And she goes, you're not leaving, are you? And I said, actually, we were, um, but I can't thank you enough. And let's figure out what we can do. And she goes, she goes, I didn't know if I was going to win or not, but I've set up an appointment, a meeting with the county commission and you, because we've got to figure out whether I win or not, I knew we needed to figure out the suicide problem down here. And so she had actually arranged for the um, county commission to meet with me that night. And I sat down with them and they explained the problem. And they had just buried a very prominent young man uh, from a very well-known family um, that day, that morning. And he said, listen, we, we've got to do something. We are losing so many people. And I said, you know what? Why don't we set up a big training? We'll come down. We'll train all of your prevention specialists. We will do whatever it takes. And we, my wife and I drove back down in August. We sat down with all the prevention specialists, the first responders, the school uh, administration, and everybody that worked in prevention down there and said, listen, we're going to come down and make a big weekend of it in November. And we are going to train everybody in these various trainings. We're going to train the community. We're going to take the heat off 
the people down there and we're going to say, listen, I don't know if you're aware, but there's so many great things going on down here. We're going to tell the community about it. And they're going to now have a little bit more hope and faith in the system, nowhere to turn when there's problems. And, and then I ask a friend of mine that is a Nashville recording artist. He was the lead singer for Due West. And um, he's an LDS artist with the Nashville Tribute Band that was actually born and raised in Richfield. So I re- reached out to Tim Gates and I said, would you be willing to come to a concert after this? And let's just really get the community all on board with making a difference. And he was all in, came there. We did that full weekend of training with the prevention specialist, taught him how to build a coalition, taught him how to work together. Um, and they had, like I said, had in the t- number of, in the twenties of suicides. And then I said, if you guys will put all of this into effect next year, I promise you those numbers will go down. I promise. And I said, we'll talk, you know, next year. And so I just barely had uh, one of them come up and go on my podcast with me to, to tell me the numbers for this year. And now that a full year has passed, she came up and as she had left Richfield, she was so excited because they'd had zero suicides this year. And by the time she got up to record the podcast with me, they had actually lost two. But I will go wherever people need the help. And I just don't think you can say, hey, we're not going to go around the mountain because, you know, you're out of our county. And so while we live here and we're based here, and, and yes, our focus is Tooele County, I, if there's a need, we will do what we can to make a difference. So that's, I know that's a long answer. It's a great answer, and it gives us insight into what um, needs to be done, the need, and what you're doing. I want you to talk to, I want to go back to that dear friend of yours, that bishop um, who lost his own son, and a lot of us wouldn't know what to say to him, Um, and you can probably help us, help listeners know what to say to someone that you really care about who's lost a child or a parent or a close family member to suicide. Well, anything I will tell you um, is going to be something I didn't do. Because like I said, these two suicides hit out of nowhere. I, I knew nothing. I didn't know what to do. But I'll tell you what, when somebody suffers a loss, uh, the first thing that you have to understand is people will say, I, I didn't see any signs. I didn't see any signs. And so from my standpoint now is, you know, we might not see signs. And that's why it's so important to get the trainings um, because as people get the trainings, they'll come up to me all the time and say, I guess there were signs I didn't even recognize. Um, and it's so important to, to have those trainings, not because you think you're ever going to need it. It's kind of like getting CPR trained. How many of you are CPR trained? A ton, I bet. How many of you have actually had to perform CPR on someone? Hopefully very little, right? But, but hopefully, if that ever were to happen, you'd know what to do because of your training. It's so important not to think that it's not going to happen in my family. It's never going to happen in my family. And then not be 
ready if that situation ever arises. Because Give our listeners some idea of some signs then just... Um, um, well, I'll tell you what. If you see someone that their mood just drops, I mean, they're normally a happy-go-lucky person and their mood drops and they seem to be in a dark place, that's probably the most easy one to pick up on. And then what do you say? You know what? And, and I'm a direct person, Richard. So if I see something, something in someone, I will maybe walk up to them. And, and with that example I gave you, and that's just one, I'd walk up to that person and say, oh, you know, Richard, I noticed that uh, you seem to be in a dark place. I, I, that you, Things seem like they're not going well for you. And sometimes when people are going through hard things like this, they could be thinking of suicide. Are you thinking of suicide? If the answer is yes, you might want to have a follow-up question. And that follow-up question could be, wow, uh, thank you for telling me that, that you are thinking of suicide. Do you, have you put much thought into it? Do you have a plan? And if that person says yes, they have a plan, do not leave the person alone. You've got to get them to someone that can help. It doesn't have to be you. You don't have to solve the problem. But we've got to do a handoff and get them to, to the person that can help. If they say, they, no, I don't really have a plan, you know, then it's not as serious, you know, if you feel like you're getting an honest question. But just like that person that their mood drops, I think we all know someone out there that kind of is always in a down mood, kind of, you know, we, we call them Debbie Downers, right? If, if there's someone that their mood is always kind of lower, and they always seem to be kind of a little bit dark, that person can just all of a sudden become happy. And if you see that that change in mood, then yeah, you better have a discussion. And in one of the trainings I do, they talk about ways that you know if someone is suicidal. And they break it down into three ways. They say, hey, you're going to see differences in talk, in the way they talk. Um, you're not just going to have people come up to you and say, hey, man, I, I want to die. I want to take my life. You'll hear maybe more vague things like, man, I wished I could go to sleep and never wake up. No one would notice if I were gone. Um, my family would be better off without me. Kind of a little bit vaguer. But, but you will hear things in the way they talk. Now, not just in talk, but they're also is in mood, like we discussed, and then in their behavior. And, you know, you think behavior, what do you mean? Well, we call it risky behavior. That could be someone that gets on their bullet bike and does 110 miles an hour down I-15 with no regard for their, their own life. That could be somebody that's just saying, I don't care if I'm here or not. It could be somebody that decides they don't want to buckle up in their car. It could be somebody that is uh, using unsafe sexual practices. Um, uh, risky behavior is risky behavior. And if, if they're taking no, you know, no value to their own life, then it probably be well to have a discussion with them. And like I said, if you, if you beat around the bush, and, and this is something I tell people not to do. When I ask somebody, are you thinking about suicide? When we do these trainings, a lot of people have a hard time getting that out of their mouth. And so sometimes they'll say, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Well, the answer is no, 
not thinking of hurting myself because in their mind, they think that they're going to end the hurt. I mean, that's why someone is suicidal. They want the pain to end. And that pain can be emotional. It can come across even physical in some, some instances, but they want the pain to end. And so hurting yourself, beating around the bush in the way that you ask the question, if you're not direct with people, they may not be direct back to you. And so I always say, be direct. And you know, a lot of time, uh, in many cases, these people that are struggling with suicide ideation are keeping it a secret. They don't want anybody to know what their intent is, what they're, what they're thinking about, because it makes them feel more broken, right? And so they'll keep this secret. And when you have, and I've seen this over and over again, Richard, if I'm direct with them and I look them in the eye and say, you know, man, you sure are going through a lot. And sometimes when people are going through things that you've been through, oftentimes they're thinking about suicide. Are you thinking about suicide? And you will watch their shoulders drop, their body language relax. Like, man, I've been working so hard to not have anybody know my secret. And now that secret's out and somebody actually cares. And, and there's a story I, I tell about Kevin Hines. Are you familiar with Kevin Hines? I'm not. So Kevin Hines um, suffered with bipolar disorder, still does. He... Uh, woke up one morning in San Francisco and he said, I just can't do it anymore. I'm done. I just, I don't want to live. He went and told his dad goodbye. He got on the bus. He took the bus to the, the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the Golden Gate Bridge, it's a beautiful bridge um, in San Francisco, but it's also one of the top destinations in the world for people going to end their life. They go and they jump off this bridge and it's, you know, 25 stories from the, the walking path along the side of it to the water. And people jump to end their life quite often. Over 2,000 people have attempted to end their life there. Only a handful have lived and very few have still have the ability to walk after that attempt. And Kevin Hines is one that can walk, but he tells a story that I hear over and over again from people, but his is probably a little bit more well-known if you're familiar with Kevin Hines. But he said, I felt invisible. I felt as though my life didn't matter, that there was nothing that I brought to the table, that the world would be better off without me being in it. And they, it seems kind of a common theme that people that are struggling feel invisible. They feel small. They feel like they don't matter, which is not true, but it can be the impression they have. And so Kevin went down there, not wanting to die, but he just said, God, if you're out there, if someone will notice what I'm going through, I won't jump. And they make these bargains with God that if somebody will just see me, I will not jump. I won't end my life. And so he got on this bus. And as he was on the bus, he had tears streaming down his face, just wanted someone to acknowledge that he might not be in a good place. The only person that noticed him on this bus was two kind of older men that were sitting on a seat together. And the one guy kind of threw his elbow into the rib of the other guy and says, what the hell's his problem? And Kevin heard it. And 
he even began crying more. He got to the Golden Gate Bridge. He got out. And he just decided he was going to walk down that walking path, uh, you know, next to where the cars are driving across the bridge. And, and he just wanted someone to notice him, that, that he had value. And he walked all the way down across that bridge. Not one person said anything, even though he had tears streaming, dripping off his chin. He was obviously in, in crisis. And pretty soon he heard this voice of a little German woman said, excuse me, excuse me. And he turned around and thought, it's finally my answer. Someone has noticed me. And this little German woman looked at him and says, would you mind taking my picture? And he took her camera and he took her picture and he handed the camera back to her, gave her a smile, and he grabbed the railing and threw himself over the bridge. And he said in about seven seconds, he hit the water doing about 75 miles an hour, broke most every bone, almost every bone in his body. And they have these barges that will go out and pick up the jumpers from the Golden Gate Bridge. And, and they picked him up thinking they were picking up a, a, DC, a deceased body and he was still alive. And he's got a phenomenal story. But what I want people to get out of that story is the fact that you are seen. You may feel like you're not. You may feel that you don't matter, but you matter. And there are people gathered around you that care so much. And you have that safe person. And I don't care who you are. If you're listening to this podcast, you have someone that you're close enough to, that you feel safe with, that you can have that discussion that you can say, listen, I'm in a bad spot. This is what I'm going through. Now, interestingly enough, for the people that are the safe people, right? Someone comes to you with that. In man school, they teach us to just kind of fix the problem and move on, right? So that's really a difficult thing for some people, including myself. But I want you to remember one thing, and I learned this in a training years ago from a friend of mine, Taryn Hyatt. I love her to death. She pointed out something to me that brought it up in a way that I will never forget. She said, when you listen, I want you to look at the letters of that word. And if you scramble them up, those letters spell something other than listen. They spell silent. And she says, so when you listen, close your mouth, open your ears. And just listen, because many times that's all these people need is just someone to hear them, someone to see them. They don't expect you to fix their problems. They don't expect you to, to come in with a, a Superman cape and make it all better. But they just need that person to hear them. And, and as they verbalize it and they get their, their problems out, a lot of times they'll solve their own problems because deep down they know the answer, but they need to work it out verbally you know and you're just there to listen that's a beautiful segment um john there's a lot of things that resonate with me and and my limited experience in this space that you know much better but i love talking about suicide doesn't increase the likelihood that someone will choose suicide sister roberto taught that in a general conference talk 
Um, my intuitive nature would be you shouldn't talk about bad things because if you do, it's more likely people do bad things. But I absolutely agree with you that asking the question, if someone is suicidal, this is creates a way that you're safe and for them to open up to. And I agree that if you ask an intermediate question before that question, it may not communicate you're completely safe for them to fully open up. And so I love where then the next question you asked, and I just want our listeners to hear this, you didn't debate with them if they're suicidal or not, or say, oh, you're not, or you then pivoted right to, do you have a plan? Um, and I, my limited training has taught me the very same thing. And so I want our mm-hmm. listeners to listen to, you know, to really hardwire that in is, is just what John's teaching. If you're seeing someone that's down, someone whose moods change, some yellow flags and to ask them these questions, it doesn't increase the likelihood they're going to go down that path of suicide to, to talk about that, but it communicates you're a safe person. And, um, I, then I love um, Taryn, who's a, also somebody I also admire. I love what you just taught about what you do. And for men, that intuitively usually doesn't happen to listen. And I've actually never heard that reframed as the word silent. Um, but I've learned in my church service and others, and I'm not listening right now, I'm doing a lot of talking, but I, the more I served in my church assignments, the more listening I do. Um, cause it just sitting with people in their pain and validating their experience and just sitting with them, um, is often to your point, what they need to just sort of move forward another day or give them hope. And it's not often the toolbox suggestions that, and I've learned just what you said, often they know what they need to do. Um, so that's, and we don't need to go to advanced college to learn how to listen. It's, it's a skill, it's a soft skill, but it's a skill within all of our capacity to, to learn and to do. Um, so I love that. So I'll just turn it back to you to keep talking. (laughs) No, I, uh, you know, and you and I have had this discussion before, but in the space that you're in, in the LGBTQ community and the prevention community and addiction recovery community, whatever prevention aspects out there, they're also intertwined. And, and so these things go kind of hand in hand through the whole, whole group of, of all of these things. And so for one thing, the last thing that someone that is struggling with suicide ideation needs to hear is you're not going to do something stupid. Are you? You're not going to do something dumb, are you? Um, and this goes the same thing with, with what you do. People don't need judgment. They don't need that judgment handed down as if, you know, you're the one they have to answer to. All you have to do is acknowledge what they're going through and be willing to walk the path with them. If that path takes me and someone that is suffering with suicide ideation to, um, connect them with the counselor, to take them to the emergency room, to take them to be admitted to uni, to uh, connect them with a, a religious leader or, you know, a school teacher. Whatever that path is, I'm willing to walk the path to be with them 
alongside them until they can get the help they need, until they can get into a place where they don't need, you know, me to be beside them anymore. And so judgment is unneeded in so many of those things. If you're, if you're with an alcoholic, the last thing they need is your judgment. They're already judging themselves. You know, if they're using drugs, same thing. And so I just find that everything is so intertwined that what might work in this instance may work in something totally unrelated and a different aspect. And so if we just can listen, understand, and love, and offer hope, I mean, we have people dying of all of these things, right? We have people dying because of all of these different aspects of life and and journeys that people are taking. And hope is the antidote. I mean, it is what can turn someone from being struggling with thoughts of suicides is to believe that there's going to be a brighter day, that there's going to be a better tomorrow. And so, go ahead. You know, hope. We we always say in prevention that hope stands for hold on, pain ends. I love the way you talked about the pain. I remember, and that humanizes somebody that's suicidal versus villainizes them. That this is about pain, and usually um, had a, a a way to potentially deal with pain. And that, to me, is the thoughtful way of looking at this. Talk to somebody that's listening right now that's suicidal, and they may even say, like, hey, there isn't even a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't see any hope. Um, I just see a tunnel, and there is no light, and I see no path forward to end how I feel right now. And, yeah, I could probably stay another day, but I just don't know how to do this um, I'm facing decades of this, and it's just so painful. I don't, I just don't know how to do this. Talk to that person, John. Well, the thought that came to my mind when you when you said that was I remember being a teenager. I remember, you know, having hormones all over the place, and and something bad was the worst it had ever been. And you know, you have limited thinking in your teenage years. And I remember so many times my dad saying to me, so tell me what's going on. And I would tell him. And he would look me dead in the eye and say, you know what? Let's sleep on it. and We'll talk about it tomorrow. Because things will look better tomorrow. And you know, they always did. They always did. He didn't know how to help me. He didn't know how to help me through it. But I, as an adult, I remembered how many times he told me that. Just, just sleep on it tonight. You know, here's here's something to kind of put that into perspective. We talk about isolation being a killer. And, you know, and I've used this example many times. And so if you've heard me say it before, I apologize, but there is nothing worse than having a toothache. You ever get that incredible toothache that it just is throbbing, but you know what? If I get one and I'm at work and I don't have a dentist appointment for a day or two or something, and and my tooth is just killing me. At work, my mind's doing so many other things that I can get through the day with some ibuprofen and and, uh, whatever. I, I can get through my work day. But I'll tell you what, you'll never experience anything worse than being in your room, 
laying in bed, lights out, trying to sleep with that same throbbing toothache. And I, I really believe life's a lot like this. There are distractions and the distractions help. But when you isolate, it's like going in your room and turning out the light and laying there with this throbbing toothache. And you know what? Your peripheral vision comes in and all you can think about is the pain that you're going through. And it's that toothache and you can't sleep. You can't, it just drives you nuts. But life is like that. And so in our limited thinking skills, if you're going through some rough times, understand this, that we seem to focus on what we're going through. So whatever is at hand, and if it's, you know, a breakup, uh, a loss of someone you love, um, you know, uh, you've lost a job, you've been expelled from school, whatever that crisis is for the moment, and it's going to be different for many different people. But our peripheral vision comes in. It's almost like we have blinders on and all we see is the problem. Well, when you start focusing on that, it becomes worse than it really is uh, in our mind anyway. And our, our mind is limited. Our brain is limited. And, and, you know, our brains can get sick. And, you know, if you had a broken bone, what would you do? You'd rush to the hospital. You'd go to the emergency room. They'd put a cast on you. They'd fix it. Sometimes when we deal with mental illness and, and our brain being ill, we don't want to admit that there's a problem. And so we, we don't seek help. And I'm telling you, that right now they say out of five people that are dealing with a mental health crisis, only two of them seek professional help. So, you know, I'm just going to, I'm not a genius, but I'll tell you that typically that means the other three are going to do something like self-medicate. And, you know, we're not doctors. Well, some of you may be, but for the most part, we're not doctors. And we're probably not as going to do, we're probably not going to do as good of a job as a medical professional with trying to self-medicate. And, and what we see is so many times people will use depressants and those depressants just make it worse. They make it worse and leave us in a worse place and, and can ultimately lead to suicide. So what I would say to you is if, if you feel like you're not right, something's going wrong, maybe it's a mental illness, maybe it is a crisis that you just can't see past, reach out for help. Understand that there are so many people out there that are willing to take you by the hand, be there for you, love you through this. Make sure that you are safe. Um, for those of you that think that there is no one out there for you that believes this, you know, I see the other end of it. I see the families that have lost someone are devastated. Their whole family dynamic has changed. And someone's been removed from their life that was meant to be here. And it's devastating. It's devastating. So if you believe that the world would be better off without you, it's a lie. It's a lie. There is no way. And I don't know all of you. I may not know hardly any of you, but I can tell you that there is no way that this world would ever be better off without you in it. Because all of us bring something different to the table. And you might not feel that you have a purpose, 
And you might not feel that you're making a difference. But you know what? You have to keep moving forward. You have to keep trying. It's what we're here for. And uh, if you feel like you don't have somebody in your corner, if you don't feel like you have that safe person that you can go to and count on, I would just tell you, in your darkest hour, reach out and call the lifeline. Call 1-800-273-8255. Again, it's 1-800-273-8255. They have licensed clinical social workers that'll take that call 24-7, 365 days a year, and they will get you through it. They will get you through it. But don't give up because it affects so many more people and it, it causes so much harm to those that are left behind, not knowing how that they go on and carry on. And unfortunately, and I'm going to say this because I don't think a lot of people know this. If you lose somebody in your immediate family to suicide, the risk for everyone else in that family has doubled. There's a good chance that there'll be someone else within that family that will die by suicide. And I know that's not the intent of people that have left this earth early. I know that was not the intent. The intent was to end their pain. Believe it or not, the intent was thinking they were making it better for those that they left behind. That they were going to be better off without them. Not having to bear their burdens. Not having to deal with whatever they brought to the table. But I'll tell you what. The last thing you want to do is, is leave this party early. And then find out that someone else couldn't bear with the pain that they were left with, that they too leave this party early. But you're all needed here, every one of you. And so reach out, reach out. I mean, that's the best advice I can give. Um, that's a really good segment. Um, I wanted to comment a little bit. I'm also just doing a quick Google search, but I'll try to do that. Um, episode 220 listeners is Joe Kramer, and he is a member of my local ward, a top physician, pediatrician in Salt Lake City, who talks about his own um, plan for suicide. And the thing that finally caused him not to do to choose that path was the very thing John just said. He realized he was teaching his children how to solve their problems and people in his circle. And so he is alive today. He's a member of our congregation. Um, one of my heroes, another podcast we did was um, earlier, we did a podcast and I'll see if I can reference that one. I'm just trying to remember the number, but um, on page 277 listers of my book in break, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. I, I asked on Twitter in March of 2020, I said, if you have, were once suicidal, um, what would you, and what would you say to those who are currently su suicidal? So it's sort of the group that's managed to work through this, John. <laughs> I'd love to hear the group on the other side of the veil talk to but because um, I think they'd have some really helpful insights. But this is the group that's still with us and what they'd say. And I just, on page 277, 278, listeners, you, if you have my book or want to get it, it's pretty thoughtful. Um, 
Here's one response. Whatever motive you need to stay alive is worth it. It can be something like family or pets, but it can be the spite um, you want to see what meme the internet comes with next with week next week. It doesn't need to be big and meaningful things because living is living no matter what the reason. Here's another one. I tried. I'm glad I failed. It was hard. At first, I thought it was just something else I failed at. Over time, I learned that I was loved. You too are loved. All of you. You are enough. You are complete. You are exactly who God designed you to be. Um, here's another one. You may think that no one will miss you or even care that you're gone. That's what I thought. Then one of my friends took his life last year and I got to see the other side. It sucks. You're not alone and people will miss you. Reach out before you give in. And the last one, you can choose to live for the sake of loved ones and the small joys of life. The waves of despair are real but they also subside. Please stay and witness the rest of your life's painting. There are deep shades, but countless beautiful colors await as well. You're going to to be all right. You're not alone. So those plus your words bring tears to my eyes. Um, Give us just um, your final thoughts, John, before we close. Well, I want people to realize, you know, we've taken a lot of trainings on the brain. We've taken a lot of trainings on, you know, suicide prevention. But understand that uh, they say the average person is going to go through six real bouts of depression. Six bouts. I'm I'm not talking about just waking up to a bad day. Something that can last weeks, maybe even months. And we're going to suffer with about six of those. The average person. Six of those in our lifetime. But, and I, I use this as an example. I, I seem to get strep throat about every year. And for the ladies that are listening, yeah, it's kind of like the guy cold. I, you know, it's the worst thing ever. I'm, you know, I have to think that I'm nearly dying to go to the doctor. And I'll go into the doctor and I'll be like, oh, man, this is the worst I've ever been, the sickest I've ever been. And, and uh, they'll give you the swab on the back of the throat, come back in five, 10 minutes and say, yep, you got strep throat. And we're going to put you on a pack, and, and you'll take these pills for the next five days and, and you're going to get through it. And the minute I leave the doctor's office, just knowing that there's going to be an end to it. It's not going to last forever. Five days, I'm, you know, within a couple of days, I'm going to be feeling better. And five days, the pills are gone and I'm good to go. I, I like to relate that to the six bouts of real depression we're going to suffer through. You know, it's, it's a given. Life is hard. Life never ends up being exactly what you anticipated. Somebody told me 10 years ago I'd be working in suicide prevention. I'd have laughed at him. I had no intention. Didn't even really have that much thought into it. But I hear hard things all the time from people that are struggling. And you know what? If you can just know that this is just part of the journey, it's part of life. You're not the odd man out. There's nothing wrong with you. But we're going to struggle and we're going to have some hard times. 
Unfortunately, those hard times let us really know what happiness is when we hit the good times. It's like a roller coaster. Life is full of a lot of ups and downs. But understand, you're going to get through it. Most people do. And there are people that love and care about you. It, it doesn't matter who you are, who, who you're surrounded by. We all have our, our circle of, of friends. We all have those family members that, man, they were given to us. They were a gift. Our families are gifts. Some of you might not feel that way. But understand, I'm not saying families that are just blood. The families are the people that you know you can count on. When, when times are the worst, like I said, it might not be blood, but I consider a lot of people in my family that I wasn't born into. And uh, there are people that care. And this world would never be better without you in it. And I, I can say that with 100% assurity that there's no way that life would be better for anyone with you gone. So we have to make every attempt we can to stay and be there. And you don't know that your point in time, you know, we, we do something as a, a foundation every, every December. We do the It's a Wonderful Life Festival. And for those of you that have seen the movie, we, we do this festival to kind of give back to our community every year. But It's a Wonderful Life Festival, uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, has a tie to suicide. George Bailey felt like life would be better off with him gone. And he attempted to, to jump off a bridge to end his life. And the moral of that story, as we're coming into our Christmas season here, was that he was given a chance to see what life would have been like without him. And that's just facts. You don't know the impact you make on people. You don't know when some of the most important things in your lifetime are going to happen. But the one thing I can tell you is if you choose to end it, end it today or, or end it early, you're guaranteed to not be here for the rest of it. And I guarantee if you play those tapes back, and, and, and Richard mentioned I'd like to talk to the people on the other side of the bell, I think so many of those people are, are recognizing what part of the what part of the life that they missed. And uh, that, that has to be a real virtual hell to know, you know, from my friend that lost his life in February of 2014, to not be able to watch his children grow, to see his, his wife move on, to see those children raised by another man. Um, that's heart-wrenching. So stick around. I love that. Tell our listeners um, how to find you, John. Is Does Life's Worth Living have a web address? Uh, it does. We're currently in the process of revamping it. So I'll give you the, it's life, life's, L-I-F-E-S life's worth living foundation.net go to that one right now because that's got the the most current website as we're restructuring it rebuilding it um, we're on every social media um, under life's worth living foundation 
if you are interested in maybe doing the walk to Wendover, hopefully next year, uh, Facebook and Instagram, we have, a, it's just walk to Wendover um, on those. Our It's a Wonderful Life Festival has a, a social media presence as well. But Life's Worth Living Foundation, and we have a YouTube channel as well. And, uh, and then I do a podcast as well. That's uh, it's a one. It's a wonderful life. It's life's worth living foundation podcast, and it drops episodes every week as well. And I encourage everybody to check out that podcast. It's a great podcast. I've had the privilege of being on that podcast, and a great, great topic you're focusing on. So, John Gossett, on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for your work, and. Um, in this really important space. And this is Richard and John signing up on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.